I remember my worst Christmas ever. I was home from college and uh, had just broken up with the girl I was dating. Well, she dumped me was probably a more accurate description. <clears throat> and uh, my mama got sick. And we lived in a really small town. And, of course, it's, it's Christmas. And, you know, nothing's open. So we call the family doctor we'd been going to for decades. He calls in a prescription to the only pharmacy open at Christmas, which is at the hospital, and which was like 25 minutes away. So I drive by myself. On Christmas night, it's, it's like 11 o'clock midnight. And I just remember thinking, this stinks. Like I just got dumped. My mama's sick on Christmas. It doesn't even feel like Christmas. Bah humbug. You have a... Uh, You probably had one of those uh, one of those Christmases yourself, right? Or you had one of those days. If you live long enough, you just sort of have at least one holiday season where everything kind of goes wrong. Um, or if it's not the holidays, it's it's a week, it's a month. Sometimes it feels like a year where things just don't go your way, and the deck seems stacked against you. But I sincerely hope that that is not where you are this. Christmas season. Hey, my name is Carter McInnes. I'm lead pastor here at Mountaintop. It's such an honor to be celebrating the holidays with you. If you're brand new here, uh, we're just, we're just, you know, we're really humbled that you've come to, to worship in this place. If you're watching online, thank you so much for welcoming us into your homes and your living rooms, wherever you're watching. I hope that this Christmas is fantastic. And, and I hope that the next year for you is fantastic. I hope the last year for you has been prosperous. And just, I hope the next year is filled with health. I hope that your future is good. I hope life is good. And when life is good, it's hard not to be grateful. Right? It's, it's hard not when life is just going great and you feel prosperous and you feel blessed and you feel healthy. It's hard not to do what the old hymn says that I grew up singing. Count your blessings and name them one by one. You can just, you can just list them. They're so good. I hope that the rest of this year, uh, this December, when you gather, will be full of opportunities with family and friends for you to express gratitude to God, And in those times, we do not have to be reminded how good God is and how near that God is. We feel it in the presence of loved ones. We feel it when we're, man, when it got quiet and this whole room was singing away in a manger. Like we feel it in those times. But you know and I know that life is fragile. And, and, and not all of us watching or in this room are going through seasons of gratitude. Some of us are going through a season that feels more like a grind than gratitude. Life is hard right now. It's anything but good. That'd be the last thing that you describe it. And we know that there will be tough times ahead. No one ever describes life as easy. Life is sometimes hard. And one of the great promises of Christmas 
is that we can be forever sure that when the deck is stacked against us, that we can be sure that God is not against us. Christmas, Christmas promises that God is with us. And this reminder, this promise that God is with us, here's what I know to be true about it. We need reminding God is with us when it feels like he's not. Like when things are great, when you are healthy, when you are feeling prosperous, when you are in the presence of loved ones and everyone is healthy, you don't need reminding that God is with you. You feel his presence. But when you have just been dumped by your girlfriend and you are on the way to the hospital pharmacy to get medicine for your sick mama on Christmas, you're kind of asking, hey, God, are you still here? We need reminding God is with us even when it's not. That's why understanding the promise that God is a promise keeper is so important because we've had, we will have, or we are currently having times when it feels like God is not around and nowhere to be found. And that is precisely how a character we're going to look at today, whose story we're going to see, that is precisely how King Ahaz felt. King Ahaz was king over Judah, but he felt like the whole world was stacked against him. He felt like everything was going against him. Now, he was in the line, or as we sometimes say, in the house of David as a rightful royal heir to the throne of Judah, but Jerusalem that was in Judah, it was nothing like the glory days of when David and Solomon reigned. By the time Ahaz had ruled in Ju- was ruling in Judah, the Hebrew people were split into two different nations. The northern kingdom of Israel was much larger. Judah, which was what Ahaz was king over, to the south, the southern kingdom, was tiny. And, of course, the holy city, Jerusalem, was in Judah, but that's about all it had going for it. And the big boy, the big boy on the global block was this massive empire called Assyria. And Assyria was reigned by an evil kind of sadistic emperor named Tiglath-Pileser. Do you have any friends naming their children Tiglath-Pileser these days? (laughs) Biblical name. You want to choose a biblical name? Tiglath-Pileser and Assyria had plans to conquer the whole known world. And there wasn't much that almost anyone could do about it. Their kingdom was big and expanding, and they had plans for more world global domination. You can kind of see this map. I hope you can kind of tell the Assyrian Empire in the dark green is at the time of Ahaz. They would actually grow bigger to be all the whole light green. But they are all this this kind of dark, this, this area right up here. And Judah is this tiny little, if we can put that map on the, on the screen for them to see, this tiny little yellow. That's all Judah is. That's all, that's all Ahaz rules over. And Tiglath-Pileser has all of this. And all the people 
and all the armies of all of that region. And not only that, not only that, and, and so Assyria and Tiglath-Pileser, he had plans to just further expand his kingdom south. And between Judah and Assyria were two more problems, two more problems for Ahaz. That is, their friends, their brothers, their, their Jewish relatives, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and King Pekah. And then what is called Aram, which is modern-day Syria, and when we read in the Scriptures, some of your translations may even say Syria. Aram, which is right here with Damascus. So Samaria was kind of the capital of Israel, Damascus kind of the capital of, of Aram or Syria. And Rezin and Pekah had formed an alliance. And their, their goal with their alliance now, because this was a bigger problem for Ahaz, was to come south and conquer Ahaz and Judah because their thinking is that if we form an alliance, we can defeat Judah and once we do that, we'll have all of Judah's army, all of Judah's resources. And if we do that, then we have a shot when Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians start marching south. We might can beat them. We might. We might win. So, frankly, there's not much that Judah could do about it. There's not much that Ahaz could do about it. The Assyrians were bigger and badder. Israel and Aram joined together was bigger and badder. They were outnumbered and they were outflanked. And the prospect of now two new enemies coming to attack their land literally, literally left them shaking in their boots. We're going to be looking in Isaiah chapter 7 starting in verse 2. So if you got your Bibles, you want to open them to 7. If you got your Bibles at home or maybe you got your app open on your device, uh, you want to go to Isaiah chapter 7. If you're in the room and you don't have a hard copy Bible, please take one on the, um, on the bookshelves when you, when you exit. Listen to what it says. I told you, they're left shaking in their boots. Now the house of David was told, that's the house of David, that means Ahaz, his, his kind of line, his family, his, his court that rules over Judah. The house of David was told, Aram or Syria, Rezin's kingdom, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Ephraim is sometimes uh, a name used for Israel, and you're like, why do they have so many names? We do too. United States, America, USA, Great Britain, England, United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Holland, the Dutch. So a lot of times nations have different names. So often if you see Ephraim, that really means the house of Israel. Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken. And I love this metaphor, this, this imagery, as the trees of the forest were shaken by the wind. They heard the news and their hearts, well, their hearts were shaken, just like the trees were shaken by the wind. That's how they felt. Your insides ever felt like that? I mean, we want to make fun of them. But we've all experienced things that have left us shaken. You've 
had a conversation in a relationship that you know is going to change everything in that relationship. And you walk away from that conversation and your spirit is shaken. You've hung up the phone or walked out of a doctor's office after a diagnosis that you didn't see coming. And your soul is shaken. You've got news that you're going to be laid off. And you can't figure out how you're going to pay the bills. And you, you walk out of the room and you look at your hands. And they're literally shaking. That's how Ahaz felt. That's how the people of Judah felt. This is bad news. Not only, not only is the world's greatest evil empire, the Assyrians, after them, now two other kingdoms have joined together and is after them. And you face situations like that, and I face situations like that, that we have legitimate reasons to be scared. And this is so elementary, but this is part of the message that Isaiah, who is a prophet of God, is going to give Ahaz. This is so elementary that I just kind of want to start it off and say this. You know this, I know this, but sometimes we need to be reminded of this. God's not scared. We're shaking, wondering how we're going to pay the bills. We're shaking at a diagnosis. We're shaking what our world is going to look like now that this relationship has been turned upside down. We're shaking. God, whatever you're scared of, God's not scared. He's not scared of what you're scared of, of what I'm scared of, of what legitimately gives us fear in this world. God's not scared. And God sends Isaiah to Ahaz to reassure him, to encourage him and to make a pretty big promise to him. This is what God tells Isaiah, a prophet of God, to tell Ahaz. He says, Isaiah, say to him, say to him, be careful. And remember, they're shaking. Keep calm, he says, keep calm. And do not be afraid. And do not lose heart. Keep calm, Ahaz. Everybody calm down. Don't be afraid. I know they have more soldiers. And I know they have more chariots. And I know they have more firepower. Don't be afraid. And don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. And I love this description. Because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's what Isaiah, that's what God tells Isaiah. These two kingdoms that are coming after you. Because of the fierce anger. Now listen, this, I mean, we're not going to sugarcoat it, Isaiah says. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, that is Pekah. Pekah is the son of Remaliah. Aram, the nation of Syria, Ephraim the nation of Israel, and Remaliah's son, Pekah the king, they have plotted your ruin. Now, I'm not, you know, I don't want to just kind of tell you that what's, what you've heard isn't true. It's 100% true. They're coming after you. And this is what they've said. Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart 
and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. So, I mean, let's be clear, Ahaz. I want you to be calm. I don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to be afraid because of what you've heard. But I do want to remind you, what you've heard is true. They are coming after you. They have plans to kill you, to dethrone you, to divide up your nation. So what? So what that they've plotted your ruin? So what that they've planned to destroy you? So what that the world feels like it's caving in on you? So what? Do not be afraid. Keep calm. Don't lose heart. And can I just say today that I know, I know, in the midst of the joy of the season, some of you walked in this room, some of you are tuning in right now, and you feel like the world is conspiring against you. And it feels like others are plotting against you. And it feels like the walls are crashing in on you. And I wonder if you and I could just lean into the words, if I could just encourage you today, keep calm. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. And here's why Isaiah tells, tells Ahaz that he need not worry. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. They have planned to join together. They have formed an alliance. They have drawn the battle lines. They are coming with you. They have already picked out your successor, but it ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. Their plans are going to fail. It is not going to happen. They won't succeed against you. I know they are bigger and badder, and the math doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. But listen, don't read what the Vegas odds makers are saying, Ahaz. You're a 28-point underdog. It doesn't matter. They're going to fall apart. Isaiah goes on to tell Ahaz, within 65 years, Israel's barely going to be even a people anymore. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. In a world of alliances and battle lines and kingdoms, I love this next thing that Isaiah speaks as a word of the Lord to Ahaz. Ahaz, you're going to be tempted to make alliances of your own. You're going to be tempted to team up with, you know, you could just surrender and you could team up with Ephraim and Aram. You could team up with Egypt. A big power to the south. You're going to be tempted to take things into your own hands. You're going to be tempted to do this on your own. You're going to be tempted to hedge your bets on God, on this promise that I have given you that what they are planning will not happen. Are you, <coughs> are you ever tempted to take matters into your own hands instead of trusting God? Or am I the only one? Just don't do that. I want you to trust in God. And then this is, I love this, what Isaiah says. In verse 9, if you do not stand firm on faith, meaning if you do not trust this promise I'm giving you, if you do not trust God's protection and provision, you will not stand at all. If you take matters into your own hands, if you trust you instead of trusting God's word, 
If you do it your way instead of God's way, if you make an ally with another king instead of an ally that you already have in the king, if you do not stand on faith, you will not stand at all. You will suffer the same fate as Pekah and Rezin and all the rest. I want you to trust in the promises of God. If you don't stand on faith, Ahaz, you won't stand at all. And this is really important. This is really important for us because we need to make sure that we put our faith in the right promises. The promise that God makes to Ahaz isn't the same one that he makes to us. Is there anyone in the room that rules over a Middle Eastern country that has enemies coming against it? Okay? We're going to see that the promises that God makes to us are similar, but they're not identical. God has made a promise to Ahaz that he will protect him from his adversary, but that's not your promise and it's not my promise. Are you hearing me? Your adversary may win. Your rival at work might get the promotion. God has not promised you that you will get the promotion. You might have a loved one battling a disease, and they may not win that battle here on earth. You may feel like you should overcome some enemy in your life, but we're not even supposed to have enemies. We're Jesus people. We are told to pray for and to what? Love our enemies. This is Ahaz's promise. It's not our promise. And let me just say this so clearly. You will be disappointed in God if you put your faith in the wrong promises. You will be disappointed in God if you put your faith in the wrong promises. Then Isaiah does, so we're going to talk, we're going to find out the incredible promise, and it's so much better. It's one you can bank on. And then Ahaz does something kind of weird. I mean, Isaiah does something kind of weird. He says, Ahaz, to make sure that you can trust this promise, I want you to ask God for a sign. And Ahaz is like, no way, Jose. Like, I'm not testing God, right? No, uh-uh, uh-uh, I don't do those signs. And Isaiah's like, no, 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 really. God wants you to ask for a sign. Nope, not doing it. And Isaiah says, and I hope you'll read this this week. You'll read the whole thing uh, in chapter 7 there. He says, you're testing my patience. You've been testing my patience. Now you're testing God's patience. So since you won't ask for a sign, God has decided what the sign will be that you can count on what I have told you about Ephraim and Aram will come true. Here's the sign. In verse 14, and if you've been to a church service around Christmas time, you've probably heard it. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Since you won't name one, the Lord himself will give you one. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And I just want to tell you, not one person within earshot of this or one person reading this or hearing this was thinking, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Not one person. 
Not one person was thinking about Christmas. Not one person was thinking about a Savior being born in Bethlehem. Not one person that heard this for the very first time was thinking about Jesus because that wasn't really the point. In the original Hebrew that this was written in, the term for virgin could actually be a young woman. And the young woman was probably Ahaz's wife or soon-to-be wife, his fiance. And the message was clear to Ahaz. When she gets pregnant, there's no timeline. Maybe after you and your fiance get married, a couple years, maybe your young wife, maybe in a year. But when she gets pregnant, I want you to remember this promise. I want you to remember this conversation that we're having right now. And when that child is born, I want you to give him a name. I want you to name him Emmanuel. In the Hebrew, M means with, L means God. I want you to remember that this child is a sign that God is with you. Her pregnancy and his birth will be a sign to you that I'm going to keep my promise. It'll be a reminder when you see Israel and Syria crashing down on you, when you see Pekah and Rezin leading the charge with their chariots behind them and their cavalry behind them and more soldiers than you can count, it will be a reminder that you may feel little and you may feel like an underdog, it will be a reminder. You remember your son. You remember this child that God is with you. Every time you see that little boy, Ahaz, I want you to remember you're looking into the eyes of a promise that I'm with you and that your line, that David's line, last forever and the armies that look bigger than you will fall because none of us need reminding God is with us when everything's going great God is with you even when it feels like everything is against you God is with you when it feels like the whole world is crashing down on you God is with you when two armies are coming against you God is with you when it feels like everything is against you. And Isaiah says then to Ahaz that before this boy even knows right from wrong. Now what age is that, parents, grandparents? Some of you with adult children are like, we're waiting. <laughs> seven, eight, something like that. Six, seven, eight, nine. Isaiah says, before that child knows right from wrong. So about six, seven, eight years from that child's birth, that's when you're going to know the land of those two kings that you dread will be laid to waste. You remember Ahaz. When you see that little toddler playing, two or three years old, he doesn't quite know right from wrong yet. You remember there's a promise just around the bend. God is with you. Even when it feels like everything is against you. And guess what? Guess what? God's promise comes true. Aram and Ephraim fall. And God delivers his people. They weren't alone in the battle. God was with them. Just as he 
promised. And about 730-ish years later, a man named Joseph was pledged to be married to a young girl named Mary. And she tells him that though they have not been together yet, that she is pregnant, but it's from the Holy Spirit. And he says, yeah, right. And he's a good man. He's a good man. So instead of divorcing her with a public trial to shame her, he decides to do it quietly so as not to embarrass her in front of the whole town. But just before he signs the divorce papers, an angel visits him in a dream and says, Joseph, Mary's telling the truth. She is carrying the Son of God. She's become pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want you, despite everything that makes sense, to marry her anyway. When Matthew would later write down Joseph and Mary's story, which he probably heard from Mary herself, he quotes Isaiah 7:14. And Matthew writes this: All this, Mary, Joseph, this crazy virgin pregnancy. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet 730 years before. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Everyone knew that verse. Matthew's whole church, his whole reading audience would have been Jewish. They knew that it was a promise for Ahaz, and it was a story that their parents had been told by their grandparents who had been told by their great-grandparents. It was a story that reminded them that God is a promise keeper. But Matthew is declaring a new promise for us from Isaiah's promise to Ahaz that now there would be a new virgin with a different child. And this child would be a promise of the same thing as the original promise, deliverance. But not just from enemies crashing down from the north, deliverance from sin. And not just a promise for Ahaz and Judah, but for you and you and you. promise for the whole world. God wasn't only with Ahaz in Jerusalem, Matthew's proclaiming. This baby was God's declaration that God was coming to be with us. God was coming in a baby to be with you in Bethlehem, in Birmingham, or wherever you are. The old promise in Isaiah was a glimpse, small one of a bigger promise. You will never, ever have to wonder if God is with you. Because God is with you, even when it feels that the whole world is against you.
the Christmas season reminds us that when we look into the eyes of that little boy, we're not just looking into the eyes of a, of a Hebrew boy or a carpenter's son or even Mary's firstborn. When you see a manger out in the atrium or a little scene of a stable lit up in someone's front yard, you are looking at a promise. No matter what happens in this life, and for some of you, it's happening right now. You're going through some stuff. The promise of Christmas is that even when it feels like the whole world is against you, 2,000 years ago, when a virgin became pregnant, that was God deciding that whatever happens to you, God says, I promise it won't happen to you alone. God is with us. And God is with you. Even, even when it feels like everything else in the whole wide world is against you. Would you pray? Heavenly Father. Thank you for this promise. And Lord, sometimes when we are in the darkness, it feels like we are all alone. Sometimes it feels like we are being attacked from every angle. Remind us today of the promise of Christmas. That just as you had delivered Ahaz and Judah, you've come to deliver us from sin. And just as you were with them, you're with us. Thank you. Thank you for sending Emmanuel. Amen.